mercy, look at how the time goes. And welcome everybody to the Coming Home Podcast. I am your host, John Allen. And with me today is Dr. John Stegall. Hello there. How you doing, Doctor? Hey, John. I'm Good just gonna call. You. I'm just gonna call you John. I'm allowed to call you John. You're my cousin. Uh, of so. course, of course. <laughs> you know, I just thought of something. This this episode, it, it kind of fits. You know, the name of the podcast is the Coming Home Podcast. And yeah. here we are. We're coming home. You know, how long has it been? <laughs> we, we were tr- we were trying to figure that out, man. It's been at least. At least thirty years. Wow. I'm thinking about thirty-two years. I believe I was seventeen or eighteen was the last yeah, time. Yeah, that's like a lifetime ago, and I was what, like seven or eight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, yeah. wow. Time, time flies. Yeah, it's good to see you. I mean, likewise. Yeah, I don't likewise. think you look too much different. Probably less hair. <laughs> that's, a, that's a genetic thing right there we just can't help it i think so but i think <laughs> i think it makes us look sophisticated that's a that's oh, not a yeah, downfall absolutely you could probably have some of the gray that i've got too i'm sure if you, you, you know up. what i actually have you know i'm not one to brag about my physical attributes but when i grow in a goatee it's pure white it's all white so oh, I, I get that kind of, I, I get that striking. It, it's too much for my wife. That's why I don't walk around with a goatee all the okay. time. It's just too, it's just too much for her. Yeah, you probably get some attention there. <laughs> she'll never, she never leaves me alone when I have the goatee. So. <laughs> so what I would like to, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Um, uh, and I'd like to start off with the volunteer work you do. Now, you have quite the educational resume, and I want to get to that uh, because within that education, you know, the application of that educational resume in your day to day life has to be exciting, I would think. Uh, you, are, you are a teacher in the Columbus, I'm sorry, in the, um, well, in the Columbus, Columbus City, uh, City Schools, public schools. Yeah. But the volunteer you work, volunteer work that you do um tell us about that yeah so i'm a volunteer for an organization known as next level trainings it's based in columbus and what they do is a series of workshops on emotional intelligence and leadership and this is all about stepping into a higher possibility for yourself in life i mean so basically the let's say the context of this is that so often in life, you're going through dealing with things from your past, and you don't often realize how much these things hold you back. Let's say, you know, your parents got divorced when you were five years old, or, you know, your girlfriend dumped you, you were bullied in school, maybe... Holy crap, you're talking about my life now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and this is surprisingly common, right? It um, is, it is. Yeah. You go through so many situations and, you know, like we react a certain way because of these situations that we go through. And then we tell ourselves, well, hey, I'm not good enough. I can't do this. If, you know, you're a boy, then it's like you maybe you decide, hey, I have to bulk up. I have to be this big, tough guy. So nobody to hide, hide the wounds kind of. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. we're talking about the proverbial baggage that everyone carries. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and your work, if I understand it correctly, is to kind of open uh, these people's eyes so that they can realize that they have things they can do to better their situation and lighten that load. I don't think it's possible to, to be quit your baggage that you carry. You're not going to be quit it, but you can strengthen yourself to lighten the load, correct? Isn't that a... Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So the trainings are really about like breaking through these things. Like, I mean, first acknowledging that you have these things that are holding you back in life, whatever they are, and then breaking through them. I mean, literally you go through a series of like exercises and different things that like they're basically like emotional exercises, emotional intelligence exercises, like exploring, you know, where these things come from, kind of like these layers upon layers that we put on ourselves and say, hey, well, because of this, because of this, because of this, I must do things this way, or I have to go this way, or I right, can't. Right. And we often call ourselves these, have these conversations with ourselves about this. And so we might say, hey, I want to be a superstar. I want to be like a star athlete. I want to be CEO of my own company. But because I have these stories that I'm telling myself over and over again, I never get that far. And I often hold myself back or something happens and I'm just like, okay, Hey, I give up. I can't, you know, because you're like, you see the same patterns, you recognize the same patterns that stopped you before. And so you tell yourself this, you have this conversation with yourself about I'm not good enough or I can't, or I'm unworthy. And so you do these, you go through these workshops and like I said, they have you like, look at all these things. It's very self-directed, right? I mean, there's different people like I'm, I'm on support staff with, um, for many of the trainings and you know like i'm there to support the exercises and all but it's really like your own journey you self-direct it in a sense and so you go you you ask these questions and you look at yourself and then you're like hey oh okay that's why i'm not showing up the I way see. i'd like to show up yeah. so, so is it is, is the uh, is the work is the work that that center does is that in a group uh or is it an individual almost like a therapy type of individual therapy how does it yeah, how is it set up like a, how is it set up yeah it's it's actually like a large group setup um where you i mean you're typically like a let's say the first training um you come in usually there's anywhere from 100 to 150 people oh okay that's so it. you have um so the other way of looking at it is it's like support and it's all like i mean everything's confidential um you know, it's like nobody's going out and t taking the, your story out in the world. But, you know, we're there basically as graduates. Like, I went through this two years ago. So, okay. I was part of the, uh, the training series that went through two years ago. And so... So, and you are literally practicing what you preach. Or you have absolutely. practiced what you preach. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Interesting. So one of, yeah. One of my colleagues at the school I worked for at the time actually told me about it. Well, actually I left the school, uh, but we kept in touch. We were good friends. And so she let me know about this because she had done, done it a little bit before me. She did uh, a couple of classes before me and she said it just like totally, she was like really beating herself up over a lot of things that she had experienced in life. She had some challenges and it really supported her and being able to put those in a place where she felt like, okay, these things don't define my life. Right. I know what I want. I know what I can do for myself. And it's like, I'm not going to tell myself that I can't anymore because of, you know, what happened, bad relationships or problems with her parents or different things like that, that um, she experienced. So she told me about it and I saw her posting all these amazing things that she was doing on Facebook because yeah. of her experience. Like, I mean, so the, this kind of culminates. So you go through a series of workshops, the main series, there's three, um, first two are weekends. The second one or the third one rather is like kind of like a 10 week coaching session is what happens. Like after you figure out these things no longer define you, 
you usually feel like, okay, well, great, I'm good, right? But yeah. what we found, or you know, the science behind this is that 30 days, it usually takes about a month or so for you to really like break free of these patterns. Because if you don't like really continue like practicing, um, you know, kind of the exercises and the different things that you've learned to move forward, you're going to fall back. You're going to lapse back into your old pattern. So it really takes about another 30 days of coaching and support to finally break free. Right. Place where you're not going to lapse back as easily. And so that's the last workshop and what that's really about. It's more like a 10 week coaching program. What I found out through my own yeah, self-education, if we can call it that. Uh, I've, I've read up on this issue uh, quite a bit up through the years. And from what I understand, there is actually a neurological aspect to this. Um, uh, it can be, if you break it down on the simplest level, uh, for example, if you're talking to someone you know, you and I are talking, we're sitting up straight, uh, we're looking at each other through a screen, but we're looking at each other. But if you're talking and you're kind of slumped over and you're, and you're looking down and you have bad body language, that body language trans, I don't know, I don't know the exact scientific process, but that, that, that physical picture that you create creates that picture in your mind, which then dictates your actions. It can be something as simple as your posture when you're talking oh, yeah. to someone and oh, yeah, yeah. if you have a lifetime of that pattern it's going to dictate quite a bit how you you know how you march through life so there's a neurolinguistic pathway that that has to be rewritten yeah absolutely and we see we frequently see people come in who are kind of slouched down. I mean, shy in public and yeah. Oh yeah. Like on the very first day of the training, you see, I mean, having somebody who's gone through it, who <clears throat> has been there and all like you can recognize it's a totally different have, body language. Yeah. This experience. And you see people kind of slouched over who were yeah. closed off. Yeah. And then by the end of the first weekend, I mean, they're, like lit up. I mean, they're energetic. They feel like more hopeful. Right. But the challenge there, of course, is keeping that going after the first weekend. I mean, you'll feel a high, but you don't necessarily maintain that over time. So you right. got to keep going, at least for the, like I said, through the third workshop, because that's where you get the coaching and the support and everything to like really go out there. I mean, there's challenges in it too. I mean, you have like, I mean, so I'm what, what you would say as a coach. And so I, We'll have like coaching calls with people and everything like that just to support them and like, you know, ask them like, okay, what do you want? What are you up to? Uh, what are you going to do to, you know, go for this? Right? So they get so, follow up. It's not just that they, yeah. they show up for the, for the course or for the, 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 the meetings in person, but they also get yeah. follow up afterwards. Okay. Now, how long does oh, that yeah. follow up last? So after the first workshop, it's usually about, it's anywhere from about two to four weeks, depending upon the scheduling. Then there's more after the second one. And then the third one is basically all like coaching. So there's, there's about um, seven different meetings. So there are like modules that take place during the week. And then there's like about three different weekends where you're together as a whole group. Um, and okay. so there's coaching calls that take place and all of that too, though. So it's really a structured setup and it's all about like, okay, this is so really by the end of the second workshop, you're in a place where you're like, okay, these things no longer define me. How am I going to redefine myself? How am I going to like reinvent myself in my life? What are my dreams? So you really get in touch with your dreams, what it is that you want, whatever it is. Right. I mean, right. if you want to be 
know, fitness coach or teacher, lawyer. You yeah, want to let's talk. Let's talk about the clientele. What kind of people are showing up for that? Because oh, I can, everybody. I can, yeah. Because I can imagine, you know, if if you're a business person or if you want to start your own business, if you are, I, I could see military people, uh, you know, and, and that are of higher rank and have some some uh, a leadership position in the military. I could see uh, athletes. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Everybody. Dude, that, yeah. So it's everybody. It's yeah. It's it's open to everybody. There are, I mean, educators like myself. Um, you know, the person who told me about this, she's of course an educator too. But I mean, I've seen everybody from like hairdressers to doctors, businessmen, CEOs, military officers. Uh, you name it. Like, I mean, you know, you've got homemakers. You've got people who are, you know, coming basically have come from a place in their life where they've been down and out and, you know, somebody tells them about this, Hey, this is going to like support you. Like it's not a cure all right, but it's no. something that uh, kind of like is supportive of giving you like a new sense of direction. Right. Well, so sure. You, I would imagine it opens their, it opens their eyes and gives them a new sense of the power of introspection is what I would Absolutely. think. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's international too. Like, I mean, there's people, I've seen people, John, who have come from, I mean, I'm sure there's a few people from Norway that have come in as well, but I mean, I've seen people from Europe, from Africa, from wow. Latin America, like all over so, who come to these. So, so they are on the map, literally on the map. Oh yeah. Wow. It's not just, yeah, literally there's a map up where you can see oh. people from where they've been and they had, they had, used to have these pins that you could stick up before they ran out of the pins. If you see, you, if you see any pins, if you see any pins on Norway, let me know because it's not that big of a country, and I'll go I find will. that person and test them out and see if the see if they're learning <laughs> stuck. <laughs> okay, we'll do. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's very informative. I mean, it's so diverse. I mean, you have people from all walks of life, mm -hmm. wealthy, poor, middle class, all races, what gender, is, everything. What is the history of Next Level Trainings? How long has it been around and who started it? So Next Level has been around for five years. Um, it was founded by uh, three people, Chris Hawker, Summer Ronaldo, and Abraham Alexander. Chris is actually an inventor. He owns a company called really? Trident Design in uh, Columbus. And he, um, he actually learned about um, this type of work through uh, Lewis Howes. I don't know if you're familiar with Lewis Howes. I've heard that name, yes. Yeah, he's... He's a former arena football player. He has his own podcast series that he does. Right. Um, he's got like this whole, you know, he's, he's does like the sum of the greatness. I mean, that's his book. The, uh, the school of greatness is his podcast series, but the sum of the greatness is actually um, his own like kind of conference that he does. And he actually holds in Columbus. Um, and so he's kind of along, he's gone into like, you know, podcasts looking at like emotional intelligence, like life, coaching different things like that um he was an intern for chris at one point and that was the connection and he went to you know kind of make himself big and out west in california and just you know in his process of like wanting to you know pursue his own dreams found this work out there there's another center called um, mitt in california that he attended the workshop the same workshop series out there okay um you know, met one of the trainers there by the name of Chris Lee and Chris Lee is basically like coached him into like kind of where he's at now. Um, took, he basically, Chris Lee basically took on Lewis house and has been like, you know, coaching him and everything. So he's kind of like his personal coach. Uh, but Lewis house wanted to basically go back and share this with all the people that he knew from Columbus. And Chris was one of those people. And he invited Chris out 
to attend the workshops and Chris was blown away by it. Amazing. Um, he just decided, Hey, I'm going to, you know, tell my family and friends about it. And, you know, eventually he got a few of his friends together, including his wife, Summer, and then uh, his best friend, Abraham Alexander, and they set this up. Oh. And so they actually have two branches now. They have the Columbus location, and then they have Philadelphia. Yeah. Where, Philadelphia. Yeah, where Chris's um, father-in-law, Joe, and his sister-in-law, Alexa, and um, they actually set up a different one there. But they're, it's, basically, it's the same company, but they do the same series of workshops. So it's Columbus and Philadelphia that you can okay. attend the workshops in. Yeah. I would imagine that it would be, it can be very enlightening for a person who has, especially an older, you know, a middle-aged person or an older person who has gone through their life with very little introspection. And, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people that do that. And they kind of don't put much thought into why they don't have the life that they don't, that, you know, that they, that they want. Um, so I would imagine it can be a pretty enlightening experience to all of a sudden see the power of self-evaluation and you figure out, you know, what it is you're battling and you actually start consciously battling it and changing your life. What are some of the biggest life changes that you've seen from clients who have come through there? Because you have follow-up with them, right? So I would imagine then oh, yeah. you see you see the change in these people. What are some of the biggest examples you've seen? Yeah, I don't I guess thinking about where to begin with those. I mean, I've so seen many, like, I would imagine. Tremendous changes. So there are people who have lost, I mean, I think one of the most profound things that I've seen are people who have lost loved ones, right? I mean, to various things where it's a, whether it's a disease or, you know, just old age or whatever happens and they might be in a state of beat up because they didn't spend enough time with them or maybe, you know, they were distant, something happened, there was an argument, they fell out and they lost touch with this person and then that person died and they just never really felt like, you know, they were in a good place. Um, and so they have a chance to really clear that up, even though that person is no longer physically present, they're still able to kind of like open up that conversation right. through a supportive process and then like let go of any resentment or anger or anything that happened. And we also see this with people who have been abused. Um, I mean, literally like women who women and men who have been abused, neglected, raped, whatever, and they're able to like finally like process through this pain and suffering that they've experienced and, you know, put the their relationship with that abusive person into perspective and actually forgive that person. Not forget, but forgive them forgive. for, yeah. for yeah, and like let go of like all the things holding them back. And it's like literally as people are doing this, it's like watching a weight like the weight of the world coming off of them though. Yeah. They're like, they, they get to step into freedom for themselves that they're no longer defined by this experience. And it's such a tremendous and beautiful thing, you know, for that person to, Amazing. you know, for them to experience that and see that. Uh, and, I, and I'm just sitting here thinking of, you know, you, you, you're doing this with no salary. You're volunteering. That says a lot about you. I mean, it takes a big heart to do such important work and not expect any compensation for it. What is it that makes you do that? What is what your interest? Me? What is your interest in doing that? I think it's just like because this is such a powerful experience. Like for me, like you know, like in full disclosure, like I don't feel like I've had. I mean, and it's not to diminish 
like any of my experiences or anything in my life. One thing we say is like, everybody has like different experiences. Like, yeah. I mean, because that person may have been through like hell or they've been through the worst thing imaginable. doesn't make your experience any less significant to you, right. Uh, right. you know, that you've experienced. So, you know, I've had things in my life, but nothing, you know, so I guess I said, I should say, I don't want to compare. And also like those things, you know, did define my life or allowed them to define my life. And I allowed myself to hold myself back because of these things I experienced. I mean, I had a, for example, I had a really nasty experience with one of my teachers in high school. And she was just, she just like, she was really, really controlling. And I guess one of the things that really, that I didn't like, or that really got to me over the years is because I wanted to run for student council president, but she was basically controlling things, manipulating things behind the scenes. And wow. I was one of the people that she could control. So she basically said that I'm, you know, she wasn't going to let me do it. I thought, they only did, I thought they only did those things in Washington, DC. Here she is a teacher <laughs> messing well, that, with a high school kid like that. that. That was my first education on politics, John. And wow. I think really like, you know, about the kind of behind the scenes backdoor yeah. stuff that happens though. Yeah. But that destroyed me. Um, and I just, and it was actually because of that experience that I decided I was going to become a teacher because I said kids should have a better teacher than that. that that's like, I always said I would be fair and, and you know do everything possible to support my students because of that experience and so but that was one of the things that i was carrying with me and okay. so that's one of the things that i got to you know put into perspective so it's like seeing the value of that seeing the value of being able to no longer be defined by you know these experiences or like beating yourself up around self-worth conversations yeah yeah things like that that you know it's like i see a tremendous value in that and so it's like i want to like support other people in having that too, whatever that is for them. And, and plus you get to meet so many different people. Oh, I, I can know? imagine. I can imagine. Yeah, I, and I can imagine I, even for those of you who are in that, um, I don't know, what do you call it? Like a counsel, that counseling position. More coaching than counseling. Coaching. Let's call it coaching. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Coaching is probably the best word for it. Well, you know, wow. I, and I'm also I also get into a lot of coaching situations. Um, I do a lot of online, not not a lot, but I do some online coaching uh, for powerlifters who are trying to to get into competition preparation and whatnot. And in that coaching position, for me, and I'm sure it's the same for you, that in itself is a learning process for the coach. You know, you can apply some of the observations that you have in these um, students or in these people who are running through that program, or in my case, through other powerlifters, and I can apply that to my own experience and change a few things up in my life to continue on my path. Have you experienced that, that you've, that you've taken uh, something out of that that has made your life better as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I would say, I mean, one of the things that you do learn is, you know, really how to be a coach, like, you know, not just in the athletic sense, but as you say, like, being a, you know, coaching yourself through things. Um, I've actually, I used to work as a teacher evaluator, the school that I was at before I moved into the Columbus schools, I was a uh, teacher evaluator and so one of the things we would do there is sort of like coaching you know as far as um you know what worked in your lessons what didn't work mm -hmm. in your lessons and you know things that you need to build off of so i was doing it before i had exposure to any kind of coaching at next level but since i've experienced that kind of coaching 
I've been able to use that in sort of more of my research at this point, like looking into teacher evaluation stuff, but just in general, I mean, both coaching myself, uh, casual conversations that come up with, you know, friends and family and all about, you know, where sometimes people will come to me about like, okay, what should I choose as far as like going for this job or uh-huh. I'm looking at reprogram. And so sometimes I'll go into coaching with them like, okay, well, what are you, you know, what is it that you want? And so it's really coaching is one of the things I would say is that, and I know, you know, this too, John, that coaching is an advice. Advice is like, well, you should do this or you should do that. Right. And that's not very productive. Yeah. Yeah. Coaching is the introspective part of that. It's like, okay, well, what is it that you want? So you ask questions to basically get to that inner knowledge that people have about what it is that they're really interested in or what's holding them back. And on. so that's really the value of coaching. And that's what I've been able to uh, incorporate into my life and my interpersonal interactions with people yeah. to support them and support the, those relationships. Interesting. My relationship with myself. I read somewhere um, that coaching, uh, it was a very descriptive uh, paragraph or two in this book I was reading, that was, and it was describing coaching. And it said you can boil it down to something very simple. If you visualize, everyone's life is just a series of doors, and most people only go in and out a couple of those doors in their life and they ignore the rest of those doors. A good coach learns how to tap that person on the shoulder point towards those other doors and then the person you're coaching actually sees the doors and then that is a whole nother process then to coach them into going through those doors and all of a sudden that person has dramatically potentially dramatically expanded the possibilities in their life that's coaching yeah absolutely absolutely as you said doors that you would have never even considered going through it's like hey well have you considered this or have you you know or, or what is it that you really let's say along those lines like you know rather than have you considered this um you know what would support you or like different questions like you know what have you not tried what have you not gone for um, yeah. but just like really getting people to connect with what's you know like the deeper values that they have the deeper interests that they have and not just glossing over things at a surface level i mean so many of us actually you know as you said really surface level we do the same things that we've always done whether or not they get us any results and, creatures of habit yeah absolutely and so the process and coaching really is supportive of breaking through that and like saying okay well just because i've done this doesn't mean i always have to do it especially exactly. if I'm not results from it yeah it's all about the opening one's eyes to a new possible to a new path which can lead to a new possibility yeah absolutely now you are um you have a doctorate in education I do from the University of Cincinnati. From the why? Why not Ohio State, man? What's wrong with you? What's wrong? With you? <laughs> yeah, so that's a long story. But you, you, I mean, you are, you are currently studying for another doctorate at Ohio State, correct? Yeah, believe it or not, it's it's so it's kind of a long, convoluted situation. How, you know, how so? I'll, Tell us about it. So. In all honesty, I probably should have just gone to Ohio State in the first place because I was living in Columbus <laughs> at that time and the school I worked for was going to pay for me to go to school. So before I start working on my doctorate, I had my, I was going for my master's degree. And I was really looking at Ohio State, but they didn't have an online program. And Cincinnati did. And I was really like, really blown away by what they offered at that point in time. So I in decided, an online, online program. 
Yeah, it was an online for my master's. So it was an online master's program that I ended up enrolling in. And it was a good program. I was really impressed by it. I got a lot out of it. And it was a lot of the the main feature was the regular group interactions that I had with the people that I was attending with. So we had a cohort and it was about 20 different other students plus myself that, you know, we'd go through these classes and we really had one facilitator. There were classes that were, they were classes that were taught or organized by, let's say about seven or eight different professors in the college. But we had one facilitator who herself was a graduate of the program and she kind of like supported it support us you could say she was like our liaison okay. between professors and you know anything else that came up and uh yeah it was really like a tight-knit group and we had a lot of good experiences that we shared and talked about all the issues that come up and you know for those of us that, so my master's program was actually in uh, educational leadership or education administration and so these were all people who were basically either going into administration or considering being principals or you know some some manner of educational leadership. Yeah, because that so, was my question was, would that then qualify you to be a principal at a school? And the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah. actually it would. So part of it was the end process was there was an internship that you got to complete, that you were able to complete. And I did that. And the end of that, of course, is getting your principal's license, which is, you know, in the United States, it's typically how it goes. You get a principal's license after completing so many hours in an internship in a master's level program or a graduate level program. Okay. So I did that. And so, you know, I was impressed by my experience at Cincinnati for the online program. And I, at the end of it, the facilitator who, again, as I said, was a graduate of the program too, she was impressed by the work that I did. I, I never thought of myself as a great writer, John. I just, you know, oh. I kind of, kind of got through it in my undergraduate program and I cranked out a lot of papers late at night and was really super stressed out about it all that but I for some imagine. reason you know that was back in 2000 when i graduated from the university of akron so from 96 to 2000 i was at the university of akron um so it was about 10 years so before i started my master's program at uc at cincinnati so somewhere along those lines i picked up great writing whether that was at a level of maturity or interpersonal development or something like that, where I was able to actually write really well. So she was really impressed. Her name is Carrie. She's uh, Carrie Schneider. Again, she's a graduate of the program, but she was impressed with my work. She recommended me for the doctoral school, for the doctoral program. So I'm like, well, okay, well, if it's like this, of course. Sure, uh, sure. So I was already in Cincinnati. I already had those connections. There was financial support for me to go. So I'm like, okay, well, even though I kind of wanted to go to Ohio State, then <laughs> I ended up going through Cincinnati. And, you know, it was a good experience at first, I would say. I had a similar actually to Cincinnati for those classes that I took there and where I was in my personal life at the time, I was, you know, my, I was married and my marriage wasn't doing all that great. Um, this is back in, in 2011. And so I thought it would be supportive for me to actually move to Cincinnati, at least or live in Cincinnati part time, you know, so it was like a separation that we did, but it yeah. also supported me and, you know, to like go to school there because it was i mean i don't know how much you remember about ohio but it's, a, it's kind of quite a drive to commute into cincinnati from columbus for it is that's a, that's a that's a good piece of driving right there yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah it is so i actually considered it and ultimately i'm like no i'm gonna get an apartment off campus though which i did and it was actually really good for me because what it, 
my time in Cincinnati gave me was sort of the going away the college experience that I never had in Akron because it, in Akron I was still living with my parents, you know, your aunt and uncle. Yeah, I was going to ask if you were still living with uh, Uncle John and Aunt Cheryl at that time. So yeah. you were still at home there, yeah. Yeah, I was still at home. And it was just, I was, everything I was thinking about was cost. And it's like, I almost yeah. moved out a few times. It was ultimately, yeah, I didn't want to pay for it. But, you know, I never <laughs> got the on-college campus experience that, you know, I would have as an undergrad there. I think it's something I wanted on some level, but I didn't appreciate how much value that was to me until I, I was at Cincinnati. And I really got to kind of have that experience. Granted, it was with grad students, but we still got together. We still had some fun and, you know, a couple of late night gatherings, let's say i mean i'll just know, tell you though I, no, nothing will you know i went to ohio university and nothing can replace that on-campus dormitory lifestyle now some people get caught up in that and it ruins them but yeah. if you but but if you if you can keep it in check it can be such a great and fulfilling experience and you the the amount of people that you get to meet that you otherwise never would it's it's uh I highly recommend it to everyone. If you're young and, and thinking oh, about yeah. going away to college, if you can get away from home and it fits financially, do it. It's it's yeah, such a absolutely. great it's such a great experience. Absolutely. But then, but then again, I, it's I, nice. But then again, it's nice living at home for free with mom and dad. So, so. <laughs> yeah, that, that too. That too. So I've experienced both in my life. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so mm -hmm. a unique experience for me being older at that point. But also, I got yeah. to meet a wide range of people, sure. graduate students, and you know, just like faculty members. And I got to explore the city of Cincinnati, which is actually a very interesting place. It's a lot more so than I think some people would think for you know being a. A um, lot of people, a lot, yeah, a lot of people, and myself included. When I think of Cincinnati, Ohio, I think of the South. I think more of Kentucky, which is right across the river, yeah. than I do than I do of Ohio. Yeah, yeah, it, it's an interesting place. I would say, in some ways, it is kind of a southern esque city. I mean, there's definitely a lot more country music on the radio down there, <laughs> um, but it does have some elements. It's it's sort of like. It's not really Ohio, even though it's in Ohio, and I know some people might take offense to that, and it's like, but well, that's my experience, right? Uh, it's not really an Ohio city. Like I think of when I think of an Ohio city, probably a pure Ohio city is Columbus. Yeah, even you know, necessarily like a pure Ohio city because it's got elements of the East Coast there, and I'm sure you. Yeah, you know, Ohio. There. Ohio is just a weird state. Uh, I it remember is. going uh, when I was at high school there in Norton. There was a lot of kids who had parents who had a deep Kentucky fried <laughs> West Virginia hillbilly. Uh, oh, you yeah. know, there were a lot of people who were just one generation away from deep in Appalachia. Oh yeah, I mean Akron in particular. I mean, yeah, Akron, yeah. So Ohio is just a weird state. Uh, you know, it, it's it's different. Yeah. It's different. You think yeah, I, it is. there's so there's such a wide and varied demographic. Oh yeah, very mm -hmm. much so. So Cincinnati's kind of its own. Yeah. I mean, it's I just really say it's its own unique place um, in culture, and there's certain things that they do, like I mean, opening day, which you know I'm sure with the coronavirus, everybody's mm -hmm. you know kind of really sad about. Opening day was like a for the Reds, it was like a big holiday. You're <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, literally the whole city would shut down. Like, yeah. I mean, I know Cleveland has like opening day for the Indians, but it's not quite the same. It's just like it's Cincinnati is like the that's like their region wide holiday and like everything kind of shuts yeah. down. Now, now how, how have things been for you as a teacher, as an educator during the, the shutdown in the, in the quarantine and the isolation? How has that worked for you? That's been an interesting experience. I will say that I 
do have past experience teaching online. The school that I was at uh, before I moved into Columbus schools was an online school. And so I had the chance, I was an administrator for them in various capacities, but I still did some online work. And before that, I was actually working as an online teacher. So I've actually, I've actually got a ton of experience with that. Okay. So this is no, the transition into teaching online has not been bumpy at all for me. I It's like a, a duck to water for me um but yeah but the i will say our school district and a lot of school districts really weren't prepared for this um you know it was just it was pretty sudden and you know the word came down hey everybody you know we're closing school you know they cut down the, the spread of COVID 19 and so we're all going to be working for from home. And so there was a scramble to kind of like get up to, you know, teachers moving their content online, moving their presence online, whole schools and the district moving its presence online. And well, let me online. ask you, let me ask you about that shift. Let me ask you about that shift to online education uh, at the high school level. Um, how is it with, you know, when it comes to, to online access and high speed internet connections, uh, from what I understand, at least from what I see in the news, uh, that's an issue. Not everyone has that high-speed internet connection. So I would imagine that would be a challenge for quite a few students to continue their studies pro properly when yeah, things absolutely. are being offered online. How, what, what's, uh, what can you say about that? Yeah, it is. So what we found is, I mean, my school is actually, and most of the district is actually high poverty, right? So there's a lot of, I mean, even though Columbus is doing well as a city, what we what we know is that there's still a lot of poverty. There's still a lot of people who are in a, a disadvantaged place, and so they don't have the resources that you would in some of the wealthier suburbs. So what do you do for those so, kids then? So one of the cable companies has actually offered free internet and Right now, or at least last time I checked, it was about for the offer was for two months and they were going to extend their services to these families so that they could still have Internet access or that they could have Internet access in the first place and that their kids would be able to log on and, you know, access their their content and communicate with their teachers and all. So there are different organizations that are stepping in to provide that. But we're, we do know that about a third of our students don't have any kind of or have very poor internet service. And so that's something yeah. that's been an issue with, you know, those students. And so we have had a number of students who simply can't get online that even now in 2020, there are still plenty of families that don't have internet access. So that's kind of a that's an eye opener. Not I have for a, me, but I mean for, for, for right, me. Right, right. I, I guess after after living in Norway, you know, living outside the United States for almost twenty years now, I have a little bit of a different view on certain things. Um, as an expat, sometimes when I look back at America, I'm so proud of what I see. Uh, my mm. heart aches to get back. I, 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 you know, homesickness and all that stuff. But then there's other times where I look back and I see what's going on and it just breaks my heart. Uh, over here, having access to internet, you know, high-speed internet and, 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 and all that, it's just not an issue. Everyone has access at here. It's a, it's a given almost. And it breaks my heart that that's an issue in our country. Um, are there? Do you know of any lobbying that's being done to, uh, you know, for example, to, to make internet um, a utility, just like everyone has pretty much a right to have access to electricity and heat. You know, what about what about internet? Have you heard yeah, anything about that, or do you have an opinion about that? 
That's a good question. Well, yeah, actually, I, you know, I do think internet, I mean, this information age that we're in, like, I mean, it's really just starting. It's not like, this isn't just a temporary phase that's going to go away anytime soon. So I know that, I mean, in our hometown of Akron, there actually was an effort a few years ago to set up um, citywide internet access. So it's really happening where I see it happening, it's happening on the local level where there's been kind of like an active interest where, as you say, the city is actually like looking at setting up citywide internet access. As a utility, as a utility, just like electricity or heat or, yeah. Yeah, it's not really like a state or a federal thing, at least not yet. And, you know, and that's something that I think would be interesting to, to look at. But where I'm seeing it is like basically cities stepping in saying, okay, we want to provide this so that, you know, our citizens have, you know, kind of like this freedom of access and all. Right. Uh, I haven't seen too much. Like, I think maybe what's happening is it's there's been a lot more going on behind the scenes. But more of what I've been seeing now is like um, libraries, like stepping up, offering like Internet access. Libraries are retooling themselves to kind of like become media centers because, oh. you know, get ebooks and all it's like yeah. you know necessarily they're wondering it's like do we need shelves full of books and all it's like of course we do but there's also like this kind of like re-examining their role but yeah i um that's a good question john and i would say yeah it should be i think internet should be something that's ubiquitous but i yeah, think a lot yeah. of people just assume we have our phones and you know most <laughs> You know, these phones are smartphones and they figure, well, you have internet access that way. So I don't think there's a whole lot of public awareness about those who really don't have internet access, or maybe if you don't have a smartphone, you have, you know, you don't necessarily have that as a resource or that. Well, I guess, I guess, you know, when thinking about public awareness, I, I guess people don't miss what they don't know that they're missing. Um, yeah. And again, as I say, I have a little bit of a different perspective, and I know a lot of other expats, a lot, a lot of other Americans who live here in Norway, it's the same thing. We're looking back and we're seeing some of the things that Americans are used to struggling with. You know, they're used to struggling to get, you know, health care, uh, affordable health care. They're used to struggling, you know, with internet access and whatnot. And when we live over here where those things aren't an issue, it's, it's, a, it's a perspective thing. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, like you said about healthcare, like, I mean, I think it should be a given. And yet here we have the system that's set up in the United States where it's tied to your employment. I mean, I don't know that people really think about that. It's, I mean, literally you have to have a job in order to go see your doctor in order to stay healthy. Um, You know, the checkup on things like your blood pressure or, you know, maybe have an egg. You're in your side and you're wondering, okay, is this cancer? Is this something that I have to worry about? But you have to have a job and that job may not necessarily even provide you with healthcare benefits. Exactly. So. And then to look at the flip side of that, you know, of course, you know, the, the logical flip side is all those people who don't have jobs have pretty much no access to healthcare. And is that right? Is that, I don't know. It seems to me, and again, almost as an outsider looking in, my observation from being over here in Norway is that there is this movement of selfishness. Uh, the collective nation takes a second place for the individual comfort. Yeah, there is, it is a strain that runs through American society, and I think it, it has been very strong recently and i think we're also seeing the impact of that and 
like with the Corona situation, I mean, now we have, I mean, you, I'm sure you've been following it. I mean, we had this big lockdown that happened where just basically almost everybody shut down except like five States, which itself (laughs) is interesting. We could probably talk all day about that, but now we're seeing this push to reopen. And like some people are saying, Hey, I want to work. I want to make money, all that. And it's like, well, but you know, all the science and everything that we know says that when people go back out, the virus is going to spread. This is going to flare up again. This is going to be an issue. And that certainly so, isn't going to help the economy because you have no. that crowd who is choosing the economy. Let's get the economy back and, yeah. you know, and good luck with the health aspects, you know, when it comes to the virus, but they have to, you have to, you, you can't ignore, I mean, you can ignore the science, no. but you're going to suffer greatly. If you do, the science yeah. says that if you open too soon, you know if you don't choose to shut things down the virus will choose to shut things down for you (laughs) yeah and that's basically where we're heading i mean i like i have zero doubt about that all the science everything out there says that this is going to flare up again and more people like i mean job or not you're going out and if you're going out unprotected or if you're just you know nonchalant about how you go about things you're probably going to get infected at some point and you may be asymptomatic you could pass it along to your family members i mean to your children your spouse your well, it's, parents, it's scary grandparents, yeah so there's just a lot of it's scary to see how many people are just uh, you know they're latching on to the conspiracy theories or they're latching on to the to the naysayers the the, the science deniers and yeah. and you know, I, I don't know how many of them there are, but they certainly are speaking quite loudly. And yeah. when you look at the top, you know, let's just be honest about it. Look what's happening in the White House. They're yeah. starting to drop like flies with infections. Uh, in the last two days, there's been four um, employees yeah. in the White House who have gotten that virus. And then when you... Yeah, when you when, uh, Vice President Pence's aides and... Yeah, and when you... Yeah, and when you look at how Trump and Pence and the others at the top of our government are kind of downplaying the whole effects is right. You know, they're not wearing masks. They're 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 contributing to the spread of conspiracy theories, and they're contributing to the the naysayer movement. Yeah, uh, that doesn't bode handled. well. It doesn't bode well for no. our nation. No, poorly handled. I would I'd say. I mean, one of the things I would say is, I guess, a good contrast to that would be in Ohio. Right. The uh, governor, Mike DeWine, has really listened to Amy Acton, who's like the head of public health for the state. Um, and I'd say that's been an example of like, you know, I mean, if you people want to say, well, Republican, this Democrat, that I would say DeWine is who is a Republican himself. Um, you know, he's actually been very like level headed in his handling of this and like very. Um, wanting to listen to the experts, wanting to rely on the experts, which Amy Acton is. I mean, she's a doctor. She's a medical doctor. I mean, she's like, again, the head of public health in Ohio. And she's been at the podium with him, like, throughout this, you know, since they started doing these briefings every day at 2 o'clock here. Um, So there is that side of it where some, at least some public officials recognize that. And they're really listening to the experts at the same time in Ohio, we have this push in our legislature, which is a little bit more um, right leaning. If you want to say there are those who are like, Oh, Hey, you know, I mean, there's actually been this bill that's come up where they have said that we shouldn't listen to Amy acting like it's good if she gives advice, but 
you know, like she doesn't have the right to pass these public orders and all. So they actually looked at like curtailing her power and even curtailing Governor DeWine's power. And so it's like, I'm wondering, where is this coming from? Um, That's a good question where it's coming. Where is it coming from? That is that is a question that I am asking more and more often. Public health is at stake. I mean, this virus is no joke. We've seen what it can do. I mean, you've probably, John, I know you probably read and, yeah. you know, if you're listening in, you may have read like in in Great Britain and England, I think they've had cases of kids that have come down with this weird syndrome where, you know, they're having like all these things show up. This virus is doing very gnarly things. Yeah, it's strange. It's a weird virus. Plots and different things that just pop up. And even after you've had it, sometimes there's different like, you know, ongoing side effects that happen. It looks like it's affecting like, you know, kidneys and people in their thirties and forties, people in their thirties and forties are falling out with strokes, you know, right in the middle of their contamination. It's crazy. this isn't our grandparents' flu. No, no. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's really a, a concern, and I think we can't be nonchalant and just you know kind of flaunt like, oh, hey, well, you'll get it and you'll recover from it, and it's like that's. I mean, maybe a lot of people case, will, but 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 there's a large enough number of people who won't that no. something should be done to prevent to prevent that or to yeah. soften the blow. I don't know. Why can't people just be reasonable? And that, it has not, to me, it has nothing to do with where people lean politically. I have nothing yeah. against a Republican. Uh, I can say that in the same breath as I can say that I think a lot of Democrats are idiots. It really doesn't have much to do with politics. Oh, yeah, it just has to, do, has to do with being reasonable. It has to do with caring about the well-being of the nation. It seems like a lot of people will stick to party politics on both sides. Mm-hmm. Now I sound like now I sound like number forty five. Both sides, good people. No, but both sides sometimes will stick to party politics to the detriment of the country's well being, and that's sad. It didn't yeah. used to. It didn't used to be like that. We're both old enough to remember when it was not oh, like yeah. that. Yeah, I um, I, I feel exactly as you do, John. Like, and I think the big issue is ideology. You have some people who are so ideologically driven, whether they're right wing or left wing, Democrat, Republican, like their ideology, like this is what I'm, I stand for. This is where I plant my flag. And they don't want to see, they don't want to hear anything else. And then there's the more pragmatic side or the practical side, which is like, hey, I may be a Republican. I may be a Democrat. This thing is really messing us up. Like, Whatever our politics are, let's put it aside. I think that, like the governor of New York, um, Cuomo, was Cuomo, saying, I like that guy. Yeah, like put. We've got to put this aside. We've got to go beyond politics. And I think he was addressing uh, what's it, um, the majority leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, who's been very <laughs> highly partisan. I mean, yes. Like, it's like I'm looking at this guy too. Like people are dying, and you're still trying to push your party out party ideology you're trying to put this above everything else well what got me one of the greatest displays of hypocrisy um and and idiotic irony in politics that i've ever seen was when mitch mcconnell who represents uh the state of kentucky right yeah kentucky and i don't remember the numbers but kentucky takes several billion dollars more from the federal government than it gives and yeah, Mitch McConnell says that New York should just declare bankruptcy because they don't deserve any more federal help. And New York gives 
several tens of billions of dollars more to the federal government. Oh, so yeah, ba he's... basically, New York is subsidizing uh, the poverty of Kentucky. And Mitch McConnell from Kentucky has the nerve to say what he said about New York. That, that, just, that just blew my mind. And the thing yeah. is, what's sad is that a lot of his followers on the right will never call him on that. They won't see the irony in that statement. They won't see the stupidity in that statement. And that is the state of politics in America. It's crazy. It is. It is. So, and I've, and the way I look at it is I've, I always look for the people who, you know, recognize that where we're at now is so much more important than whatever your political ideology is or wherever your political yeah. base is. And there are, and we, we both know John, there are Democrats that are very much, Hey, let's work together. There are Republicans like, um, I think the governor of Maryland is very much like, Hey, let's, you know, yeah. I may be Republican, but like, I'm here to serve you Democrat or Republican. Right. So there are some people, there are a handful of others that, you know, they're just like, Hey, let's, let's put all that aside. Well, but governor the really DeWine, yeah. thing is, is to see those like Mitch McConnell, who are just like, he's still going ideology, yeah. ideology, ideology. This is the way it is. And I'm going to, if you know, you're not with me, then you know, screw you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just crazy. There's no, um, there's no intelligent thought behind a lot of these political moves that people are taking. And yeah. uh, I don't know. I wish people would just see it for what it is. Yeah, I wish people I mean, would see it for what it is. I mean, they've, if you're looking at like the statistics and all, if you're looking at like kind of the projections they made for how this pandemic is going to go forward because of the things that we're starting to see some of these more ideological ideologically driven people doing as far as like pushing to reopen everything we're literally seeing the curve and the projections go up yeah yeah they're lifting the restrictions they're lifting the things that were in place to stop it from going up <laughs> so like what are we doing we're committing suicide exactly so how i don't see how those politicians and the people who support them i don't see how they can look at these graphs oh forget about the graphs why can't they see in their own community in their own city in their own state what is happening because of these foolish partisan decisions that are being made as far as opening too soon. Why can't they see that and understand that something should be done about it? Are people that selfish? Are people looking that, are, are people that, what's the word in English? Now I'm thinking in Norwegian. Uh, do people have such a lack of vision uh, that they can't see what's happening in their own communities? It seems yeah. to be, it seems to be that way. Yeah, it's I I wonder about that too. And I think there is a lot of I mean one of the things that I've consistently read is that most people do support the lockdown continuing. I mean the other thing is that at least in some form it was up in se it was like seventy one percent was the last yeah. uh, I saw. Yeah. Well the other thing is like there's such a push to reopen the economy at the same time that I mean what I mean, one of the big fears that at least I have is that if you push too soon and there's no public confidence in going out in public and spending and, you know, doing all the things that you were doing before, yeah. it's just going to crash these businesses. I mean, it's actually going to hurt them even worse than if you had stayed in the state of lockdown and, you know, tried to provide them aid and support to get through this. Yeah. And so I think maybe part of the ideology ideology coming in especially from you know the right wing is that they're looking hey we don't want to you know this whole thing about government a government support we don't want to like extend this to these businesses but that's what's going to get them through the crisis and yeah. if you socialism if you don't give them that you so tell them socialism saves the crash. day <laughs> yeah it's just like it's this ideological bent and what we see is like, I mean, back during the Great Depression, right, with uh, Franklin Roosevelt, these were the kinds of programs that were yes. needed. If it wasn't for these programs, 
I mean, ultimately, this isn't what jumpstarted the economy. World War II is what's jumpstarted the economy. I'm a history teacher, so that's just, <laughs> I, I actually just cover this with my kids. But yeah, the World War II, getting into World War II with the bombing of Pearl Harbor is actually what jumpstarted the economy at last. But these programs that Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal Democrats put into place were essential to, like, you know, keeping the country from breaking down and going going into a full-on revolution because of people being impoverished and people not having access to things like food and, you know, the services and all. Yeah. So the programs are more important about giving people this sense of, hey, we're going to get through this. We're going to be okay. Um, you know, put people to work. So doing government service projects so that they feel like, hey, I'm still contributing. I'm still like, you know, supporting my my country, my town, whatever like that. Um, so it was more about kind of this like sense of support. We yeah. are in this together as we've been seeing these ads, like we're all like stay home together. We all yeah. are in this together. So, and maybe that goes back to the whole hyper individualism over this greater good. Mm -hmm. That seems to be, you know, kind of the way where we're at right now, where you have these like people pushing for hyper individualism. Hey, I want to get out. I want to go to Starbucks and you know, yeah, yeah. Starbucks and get COVID too, or give COVID. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, love, take a I, I love coffee. I mean, I miss my coffee <laughs> stuff, right? And I'm not going out. I mean, coffee you know, latte I, with a touch of uh, COVID. <laughs> no, no, it's just like even if, even if them reopening, like I, you know, wish them the best. I want sure I want those businesses to be around. Sure, we all do. Like we we all need do. to continue to take the precautions necessary yeah. to protect those people, to protect everyone. And then hopefully when there's a cure of vaccine for this, then we can say with confidence, hey, get the vaccine. We'll start opening things up. We know this is under control. Now you can go out with confidence. Do you think and do you think, John, that it is a lack of education let's just say it a lack of education the uneducated masses and do you think that that lack of knowledge that lack of people being students of history that has kind of put us in this situation because if you're a student of history you know you mentioned roosevelt with his new deal and how that was applied and what it did for our country or at least it set us up to 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 have that big bump in our economy of course world war ii the opening of it uh, really put a lot of people to work. Um, if you know that, if you study history, and if you know that, how can you be a hater? As I like to say, there's people who hate socialism to death. <laughs> they will literally uh, be so against so-called socialism, you know, things like health care for everybody. You mention that word, the naysayers will start screaming, oh, no, no, that's socialism. Um, <laughs> socialism... You know, that you, you, can, you can debate what that means. A lot of people go immediately to Venezuela. Well, that's socialism and it doesn't work. Well, that socialistic government in Venezuela does not work. However, here in Norway, we have what we, what we call democratic socialism. And good God, it works. <laughs> it, works it works fantastic and I'm living it every day. So I'm wondering if these people who are so against socialism, uh, or at least socialistic ideas and socialistic leanings, uh, for example, free health care or, or the stimulus package, for example, um, you know, people are getting 1200 bucks. That is a socialistic move right there. But people are so anti-socialistic ideas that it's to their own detriment. If they were students of history, they would see what that did for us 
in the late thirties, early forties and all through world war two. And even today, well, and it's also how we frame it, right? So if you think about roads or socialism, I mean, public yes, roads. Like, yeah. I mean, the road in front of your house is that you word know, that public. Part. That word public goes yeah. hand in hand with socialism. Yeah, we're paying. If you pay taxes on that road, I mean, that's socialism. That's something everybody's paying into. And then the city or the state government goes out and, you know, performs work on those roads. The federal highway system here in the United States. That was, I mean, by Republican President Eisenhower. Eisenhower, he got the idea when he was uh, General World War II and he was over in Germany and he saw the Autobahn and, you know, uh, he thought, hey, you know, Germans have these great roads. Yeah, and great. Yeah. And then were built and maintained by Hitler and the Nazis at that point. And he said, they have a great highway system. We, Why don't we have something like that here in the United States? Socialist program. Yeah. And they fought him on it. Many states, ironically, didn't even want to see that go forward. And they fought him on it, but he managed to eventually get it through. So we have, you know, the amazing interstate highway system that we have now in the united states so yeah. there are multiple different programs that are in place that people don't really see well, people don't see the nuances people don't see the nuances of socialism you know you have socialism to the far left which is quasi soviet union uh you have socialism which is that crazy form of communism that's, that china does but then you have social democracy like what we do here in norway and people equate that with having less rights I don't, I don't see that. I don't, you know, forget, forget about what the, what the, what the dictionary defi- definition of socialism is. The social democracy that we have here in Norway and, and to a certain degree in, in Sweden and Finland uh, makes me feel pretty doggone free. <laughs> makes me yeah. feel very comfortable in the life I live. Makes me feel that my family is going to be taken care of. Um, it's not this yeah. big, ugly animal that people lay it out to be. It doesn't mean less rights. It just means that the collective um, has more of an identity. But that doesn't, that's not to the detriment of your individuality. So what I, would, what I want to say as far as all that goes is that, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. And what it is is just what we've really seen over the past 40, 50 years here in the United States is this really kind of like diminishment of the public good. So, I mean, there's been a lot of like emphasis on privatization and, you know, privatization of, you know, both healthcare, of roads even. Like, I mean, there was some talk at least a few years ago about privatizing the Ohio Turnpike, which, you know, runs just north of Akron and south of Cleveland, where we're from, um, and just different things like that. The U.S. Postal Service. Yeah, private. Yeah, that I mean, so I think a lot of it where I'm seeing this push really come from is from these business interests that see profit incentive or motive that this is something that they can unlock. I mean, privatization of schools, that's even that's even come up as an issue in recent years, though. And I'm not saying all private schools are, are bad by any means. Right. But it's just this. I'm looking at the motive behind this, though. I mean, there's some people who have I think. There are legitimate private schools or legitimate, you know, situations for these things. But then there's this like whole drive to make money just because. And it it comes from this place of, I think, I don't know, like greed too much is not enough, whatever. But it's like to the point where it's challenging the public good and sense of things and where they're, you know, starting to look at, okay, well, how can we influence public opinion to see that these things are bad? And so, socialism, giving the history of, you know, like, think like, 
communism, the Red Scare in the 50s with McCarthy and all that. Yeah. I think that's become, they wanted to, they've sort of looked at, okay, well, how can we use this as a buzzword and like right. yeah. trying to affect the population with this ideology that socialism is bad. So therefore we can, you know, lobby the politicians and all to get these things privatized so that we can make money off of it. So I think we've seen kind of an overreach of, you know, some corporate private interest into the public sphere and we're actually seeing the problem with that right now with the united states handling of the coronavirus that i mean because yeah, yeah. we have a strong healthcare system when you have i mean the government does i understand like the wanting to keep a balance between privatization and you know and also like the public realm and all that you know like nobody wants the soviet union right i mean no, we don't no. like a big central government telling us well where to work where to you know where to live that sort of thing right but yeah there's like some things where you know as we were talking about earlier like your health care why should i need a job to have health care exactly I mean, we see clearly there's a need for people to have health care in a crisis like this and it should be dependent on you know you having a job that gives you benefits you need health care that's like a public safety issue yeah. if you don't yeah. have health if you can't see about your needs, you're walking around in a state of lack of health. And as we're seeing now, that is actually a big factor in who gets infected with COVID. It's appearing yeah. like there's a lot of evidence that's coming out about people who are, you know, because of your being in a poor health, compromised immune system, you're more susceptible not only to COVID, but for some of the more advanced complications. Right. Right. Thing. So yeah. our poverty, that demographic that we allow to stay in poverty with no help, no uh, no medical stuff, that could perpetuate this whole this whole uh, Corona period. It could be much longer than it needs to be, simply because we've chosen not to do anything to better our uh, our healthcare for that demographic. Absolutely, absolutely. Wow, it's uh, it's going to come down to, and the legacy of. I mean, you and I both know this, John. The legacy of racism, the legacy of inequity that exists in our country. Um, you know, like we're seeing these things. Like African Americans are being disproportionately ravaged by this. And yes, you were saying is it a genetic thing? I think it's just poor health. I think it's because you know poor access to these resources yep. and different things that. Yeah. You know that i mean if you're wealthy and you know if you're white you generally have access to yeah. you know you don't see like very wealthy people you know even wealthy people of color aren't dying of this sure. not typically but the poor that don't yeah. have access to these exactly. things are. well you know and a lot of people would try to crucify us for saying something like that they'd call us race baiters or we're pulling the race card and, and that that's to me that's just such a lowbrow response because we're just speaking on the facts yeah, it's reality. It's, it's reality. reality. And we, as you see, there's this thing where some of the people who are, again, more ideologically driven are like, hey, well, this is you're trying to twist the facts. This is reality. I mean, this we're in this situation because we are denying the facts. I mean, literally, the president denied for what, like two or three months that yeah. this was going on. And this is the end result. This is what happens when you deny reality. It's not about your ideology. Exactly. You try to make the ideology the driving thing. And this is the end result of it. When you put that forward, when you're not about like, okay, what's factual, what's real here, you're going to have these problems come up. Yeah, we that's can just set, we can set ideology and politics to the side. Just look at the facts. And I would say the fact that that man in the White House took so long to do anything about this, that makes him, that, that should disqualify him from a second term. And the scary thing is, is that it doesn't disqualify him for a second term. Yeah, I, it's, I, I'm really 
concerned about what happens. I mean, I, so I am I. So am I. Yeah, I, I, I hope that we go in a different direction in November. And if, you know, this goes on, I think, I mean, what I see is there's going to be this crisis is going to continue. There's going to be more death and more people are going to needlessly die that didn't have to yeah. die. I mean, I think, honestly, if 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 you'd been honest up front, if you'd said, OK, this is a serious issue, we've got to do something about it. And even if you admit it, like, I don't have all the answers. I'm going to lean on people who do have the answers. I think we'd be in a better place now. I wouldn't say sure. that the lockdown would have happened, but I think there would be the sense of, hey, we've got it contained. Maybe we can keep it to a few places, sure. a few cities, and then work through the issue there. And just kind and of that's a reasonable thought to have. It's a reasonable yeah. thought to, to, to think that things would be better if we had done things differently. Um, and when I say we, I mean the president. <laughs> yeah. I'm <laughs> trying to be nice, but it's hard to pull punches when it comes to well, yeah. um, the other thing that concerns me is that we have 50 different states and all 50 states are doing things a little bit differently. Like I understand. Well, but like, we are seeing, you know, uh, there's kind of a coalition. What is it between New York, uh, Connecticut, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Yeah, the and states. then you've got California, Oregon, Washington. And I believe is Nevada in on that too. Yeah. I but these, so. these coalitions. So. And so they're, they're doing it right. But the sad thing is, is that they have to do that on their own with no federal funding. Yeah. Uh, a wealthy state like New York state and they still can't fund what they need to do. And the feds refuse to come in and do it. And that, that, I don't know. I can't call that anything but un-American and how, how do we, how, what, what kind of, what kind of a world are we living in? What kind of nation do we have when I can sit here and say that our federal government, that our leadership is un-American. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. But that, but that is an un-American response that they refuse to help the states that need it. Well, and I, I always think about like throughout history, whenever there's a crisis, there's always federal support. Always. Like, I mean, and people look to the federal government for support whenever there's a hurricane or earthquake or yeah. you know something major that happens i mean what's the first thing that people look for okay where's the federal government at the president comes in i mean yeah. september 11th i mean bush came in to world trade center yes, you know, he did, yeah. and, and he was on ground zero i mean we've had you know president clinton you know who was i think what was it hurricane Hurricane, hurricane um, uh, Andrew or Hugo or one of those, I think, in down south. Yeah. President Obama, you know, like every president, the federal administration has come in and, you know, they stood up and did their job. They stood up and was yeah. the lead, they, were, they were the leader that America needed. They stood up yeah, and did their job. Absolutely. And so it's like, where is that leadership now? Our leadership is denying the very problem that we're all looking at. They're denying that it exists. Well, yeah. they've come around a little bit now, but to, to begin with, they were just denying the whole problem. It's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's crazy. And it's, yeah. um, I don't know, a lot of other expats over here in Norway, Norway, we talk about it. It's almost as if we have some sort of responsibility to try and do something to fix it. It's, it's tough. I tell you, it's tough being over here and seeing some of these things that are going on back home. It's, um, it's, it's just a weird situation. And I'm not trying to say, oh, poor me or whatever, but it, it is a, it's a real thing. We have this weird thing that we struggle with being an expat when these kind of things are going on back home. Yeah, I'm sure you was, I'm sure you do, John. Like, I mean, I know it probably feels surreal. Like, yeah. I mean, knowing the country that you grew up in and then looking at it almost from like a, like yeah. a 35,000 feet perspective. <laughs> I mean, like being not that you're at that place, but you know, just like kind of looking at it like big picture. Yeah. Yeah. You, and I'm sure you wonder like, 
do people see what I'm seeing? Or like, if yeah. what if they could see what I see from this perspective, yeah. what other expats are seeing around the world. And, you know, I'm sure there's probably some, you know, nervousness there. And then also they're getting questions from the people in their countries where they're at. Like, okay, you know, are you guys always like this? Like, do you realize what's going on here? I tell you what, I get that question so much. I get that yeah. question so often. What's wrong with America? What are you guys doing? What about the, and I, I used to try and answer that. And sometimes it would go okay. Sometimes it would lead to a debate and I have no problems with the debate, but I get tired because it is, I don't know. There's a perception that because I'm an American, I, I fall right in line with the administration's dogma with the yeah. administration's way of doing things just because I'm an American and that um, couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so as we know, some people do, and I think an increasing even of those who did support him, I think are starting to question that. I mean, if well, do you think there's that, enough well, question? Do you think there's enough questioning now to make a change at the next election? What do you think? What are you seeing there on the ground? I think some people are starting to question, but I also think, again, it comes back to ideology. I think some people are so ideologically, let's say, hell bent that it's almost like, they would rather die being right and <laughs> having to admit that they were wrong. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't know where that comes from. I think there is, it is. And I think part of it is human psychology on some level. Like people want to be right. They want to have the answers. They want to know well, that their side is going to win. Or Some that, people you know, are afraid. Some people don't have the strength to change their, at least outwardly change their, their beliefs. Uh, but I do believe that most people are quite capable of rational thought. I do believe that there are many people who voted for him who will vote for him again just because they don't want to admit that they did something wrong. On my last episode, I was talking with someone about, um, I was talking with two guests. I had two guests on at the same time. And we were talking about racism in America. And I came with a theory that most racists don't even believe their own ideology. Most racists have had so much life experience that they can't possibly not have questioned their racist ideology at some point. They have to have come across a black person or a Jewish person or whoever they hate. They have to have come across one that they found it difficult to hate, which would then lead to them to question that ideology. So my, my, um, my statement was that, was that I don't believe that there is a single, you know, white robe wearing clan member, clan card member carrying racist out there that has not questioned that ideology at some point. Well, I don't know if you've seen the case that there's this guy that's been going around collecting clans yes. uh, robes. Yeah, yes. like African American guy who's been like literally like going to clan rallies and he's been like, you know, joining with these guys and like he's just like, I guess the way he's presented himself, he's been able to like go and like, like very respectfully. Yeah. I know this is something like people say, how can you do this though? But he's <laughs> like found a way to like win these guys over and yeah. like one by one, he's turning these guys to like see, hey, you know, why am I racist or, or he's not like accusing them of being racist, but no. like, why are you saying these things? Why are you doing these things? And it's like, you see me and it's like, you get along with me and they're like, huh, yeah, you're right. Um, exactly. One by one, he's kind of turning these guys around. And so it is, I think there's this sort of like when you're familiar with someone and I think racism, so much of racism exists in the sort of like 
kind of like detachment. This other, this yeah. other, you're this other person, you're this other thing, and then you attach all these ideas, you know, you're unhealthy, you're um, nasty, you're going to rob me, you're going to rape my wife, you're going to kill my kids, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And there's this like, this like otherness, like when you have somebody off at a distance and you can attach all these like negative yeah. traits and characteristics. It's easy to do from a distance. Yeah. And then when you get close to them, you have to like really, really interact with them. You learn, Hey, we have somewhere, you know, we have somewhere yeah. taste. We like the same music. We like the same food yeah. and all. You don't look like me, but we actually have a lot in common. Yeah. And I think that kind of breaks uh, down. Yeah. And I, I believe that most people can be turned if we can, if we can use that phrase can be turned me from too. racism if they are given uh, a situation like that where they're, they're confronted with it, because I believe most people are racist from a distance. Um, if you're a new, uh, a neo-Nazi, if you're a, if you're a Klansman, you're not hanging around with that many black people. So it's easy to hate them. It's real easy to hate them. Somebody said you should drop a Klans person in the middle of a Wu-Tang Clan concert. <laughs> <laughs> One clan to the other, and then see how racist they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, yeah, I totally agree, John. Yeah. I do feel like you know we've got to learn, and that's ultimately what I see. What I hope this leads to with the COVID nineteen situation, you know, both in the United States and around the world, that I think we've got to see. We're going to have more crises like these coming up. I and mean, we've sure. got some already background climate change. I mean, that's sure. a big one. Yeah. That's, a, that's even bigger than, than COVID-19 on some level. We're not going to get there with a piecemeal approach. We're not going to get to a solution for that and get through it with people going at it individually saying, well, I've got my bomb shelter in a mountain somewhere and I'm going to hide out while the rest of you duke it out and fight it out and nuke each other over what's left of the, our resources yeah. As a plan, yeah, that's up. not going to cut it. That's not going to yeah. cut it. Yeah. So we need a like collective we response. We need a collective yeah, response. Absolutely. absolutely. This is a global emergency. I think COVID is, I honestly think this is a dry run for things to come along those lines. Oh, yeah. Like, this is our, yeah, this is our, run. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it's, oh, yeah. It's something like bigger is coming. Kind of global test, like, yeah. hey, okay, here's a crisis. This is something that threatens human health and public health and all. Yeah, this like, is this is definitely the la not the last time we're going to face something like this. So we yeah. we kind of need to get our mess together now. Yeah, and it's I mean, it's just disappointing. It's scary and it's disappointing and it's shocking that uh, that we're not getting getting it together and and we don't have a consensus. Um, yeah, it, it's it's scary. Yeah, I didn't mean for this to be a doom and gloom, doom and gloom podcast episode. But, uh. <laughs> well, I mean, I think so. One of the things that I would say is that I always I, I tell people that you know if, if I'm in charge of the world, I want to know if like say if the end of the world is coming, like let's say the sun is about to go supernova, which you know it, it's not that type of star, but if it did, if something was going to like blow up the sun and you know, we're like, hey, even if we're in some advanced society where we could supposedly do something about it, and they come to me and they say, well, John, we can't do anything about it. Um, I say, well, you know, that's it sucks. And let's throw a big end of the world party. Like, I want to know. <laughs> so at least I can say, well, let's deal with it as best as we can. Yeah. If we can mitigate it, fine. If we can reignite the sun or save it, great. And if we can't, then, you know, yeah. let's all celebrate and enjoy the time we've got left <laughs> before the end comes. 
that's a thought there. The the sun going supernova. You know what cracks me up is you 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 come with that that uh, analogy, if we can call it that. But then you take a pause and you set some parentheses around it and you say, but it's not that type of sun. <laughs> not a lot of people would have done yeah. that. Most people. <laughs> there's the doctor in you. There's the doctor in you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, maybe I should have been a science teacher. I, I tell that <laughs> sometimes too. I mean, the sign is we know it supposedly has another five billion years before it becomes a red yeah. giant. It's yeah. gonna, you know, fry the planet. So it's like, what do we do with the time that we have now? You know, um, what are we going to do with the time that we have left? Um, and I think there's definitely a higher possibility for us and you know we're learning to live with each other work together and let's make the world as best as we can make it while we're here i was kind of hoping i've been hoping that this whole covid situation can be a catalyst for some dramatic change in our society that it would bring us closer together that it would make us more analytical of the realities of our of the situation of the world you know thinking about climate change and whatnot do you think it's too late for that to happen or do you think maybe it is happening but it's kind of under the surface because the thing that is more vocal that is more visual that gets more time in the news is all the conflict with the naysayers and the, the political aspects of this in america what do you, what do you I think, think it is, yeah i think it is happening on some level i think we are seeing people as you said a little bit ago it's the people with the loudest voices that are really getting everybody's attention and those are the people that are saying hey you know let's go to work let's do all this stuff oh this is a hoax whatever but i think there's a lot of people who are more sensible who are saying you know wait a minute this isn't like we did all this stuff to lock down society for a reason and you know they want to be safe they want to be safe before mm -hmm. they start to go out and sit down in a restaurant again or different things like that and so i think there's a growing number of them the other thing i saw an article today i think it was in the new york times where more doctors are actually starting to run for office because they're seeing firsthand uh. you know, the situation with you know i mean the hospitals and you know they're seeing just like lots of bad policy or policy not being enforced that would support people. So they're like, Hey, I have firsthand experience. And of course there's this growing respect for doctors. Well, I mean, you're always a lot of respect for doctors anyway, but now we've got so many who are, you know, in the emergency situations working on, as we say, the front lines. And so they're almost like the new soldiers. Well, I, for one, I, for say, one would love to see that. As you know, I've always had kind of like this respect in this country. So it's almost like we're seeing our medical staff yeah. nurses doctors stepping into that. Well, yeah. I, for one, would love to see that. I, you know, I kind of get it. You know, at the last election, uh, you had a, a lot of people who wanted somebody new who was not in lockstep with the political machine. Uh, so in that sense, I get it uh, that there was. Uh, wish for. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, with any change, there's a lot of risk. But I, but I understand that they wanted somebody who was not in lockstep with the with the political machine. I get that. But as I've said on so many podcast episodes, but Donald Trump? Hello? <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. What about the doctors, you know, nurses? What about some of these, you know, you know, these, these like people uh, put Ocasio-Cortez, they call her, you know, she's just a regular woman from the street. And in a certain sense, she is. And I think that's a good thing that we just get the average Joe or Jane to start permeating, you know, start, start getting involved and, 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 putting some sort of effect on the political machine and get away from this, this 
two-party ideological thing that doesn't get anywhere. Oh yeah, you're well. You're you're definitely in my territory, John. <laughs> let's start. Let's start yeah, our own political party. <laughs> the two-party system is responsible for so many of our ills. I mean, I don't mean to say like it's the it's the structure, but the structure doesn't help. I no, mean, no. So if you really and you know, I study politics. And I'm a social studies teacher and all that. Like this is some something that I've looked at. So if you look at our two parties in the United States, we've got the Democrats and we've got the Republicans. Really, you've got about I'd say three or four different groups in each party that could almost stand on their own and be parties themselves. Absolutely, the was allowing for that. So in the Democrats, for example, you've got you've you've got let's say the moderate middle of the road corporate democrats um you know basically kind of like bill clinton type um those that say a little bit of you know let's go for like you know corporate enterprise all that with a little bit of government support then you've got of course the bernie crats if you want to say more of the democratic socialists now that have really come up and you know they're yeah. a force to be reckoned with and then you've got further left you've got the greens you know there is a green party but it's, you know basically one yeah. percent if even that yeah. of the population but they still have a little bit of a voice there too and the republicans you've got the conservative republicans who are increasingly being pushed out now these are people like um i'd say really kind of like the old rockefeller republican yeah. People like Mike DeWine, um, George Buenovich, former governor of, of Ohio and the mayor of Cleveland who passed away a few years ago. Um, John Kasich, who was governor of Ohio a few years ago. Like people like him who are more middle of the road. Um, they have some ideas that, again, are about, you know, kind of like pro-corporate, but they're also like kind of like pretty level-headed, sensible people. Yeah. You can have a conversation with them and, yeah. you know, I feel like really backed up if, you know, you don't disagree with with things right you can still agree to disagree then you got the far right and you've got and those are the guys that are kind of running things in the republican party right right now these are the guys let's go back let's go back in time yeah. like the old ways back in the 1950s were great um even if we could go back to 1850 that would oh, be better <laughs> yeah i mean yeah, the far far yeah. right yeah. so you've got different political groups and if you're able to look at it as these different groups then you can understand it better but there's i think there's too many people the way it's set up we these parties are like big tents and so it's like it's got this sort of like seesaw yeah. one or the other black and white way of looking at things and i've always admired the parliamentary systems in you know many countries in europe mm-hmm. where you have a multi-party system in place where you're not necessarily tied to one party i mean if if and you also have a, the ability in many elections to rank okay well if i exactly. like labor yeah. okay i'm going to vote for labor maybe conservatives say some things that i can agree with if they have to have a certain part or a certain representation part right. that's part i can vote for them you have the greens the you know whatever else the christian democrats whatever um you know so these different groups and you can see more of it's structured so that you have a better representation where you can see up front, okay, this is this party, this is what it represents, this is what it stands for. And I think also in that, even if you get some extremist positions in there, you, it's almost like a pressure valve where you're letting some yeah, of that out. So exactly. Kind of like this thing that sits back in the party and you feel like you have to like work with it and all like to move it forward. You're allowed to have pure up. Let's say up front, you're allowed to have pure ideologies or pure like 
uh, political philosophies out front so you can see them and then they're forced to kind of interact with each other and, you know, maybe create a coalition, Yeah, uh, you know, work together to lead the country. It just to me seems a little bit just cleaner and easier to follow, easier to understand. And I don't know, maybe well, I think, I, I think, complex, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fine. Honestly, I'd love to see something like that or some reform measure here in, in the United States. And I think, you think it's ever going to come. It could come out of this. Like I honestly thought I've been thinking for the past 10 years, we're due for something. I mean, yeah. the problem that we have is that we've got, what's called the first pass the post system or winner take all where you get 51% of the vote, you win. I mean, it's, it's true with the presidency. It's true with governorships. It's true of Congress. So we have single member districts. So you have, yeah. and that's why gerrymandering, if you know the yeah. term, yep. you know, John, I don't know if like, you know, people listening in, if they necessarily know gerrymandering, why you have these like weird shaped districts and it's designed to basically, the party that so every 10 years for example like in ohio most states have it set up so that the party that's in the majority every 10 years or so gets to redraw these districts in a way that supports them which is really unfair i mean it's even very if you're unfair and you have this control and you can put this in the place and you marginalize republicans if you're republicans you have this control then you can marginalize the democrats how's this democratic i, mean, <laughs> I have always thought that gerrymandering yeah i've always thought that gerrymandering yeah. gerrymandering is at the core of the problems that we're faced with in our political system it that is. right there it because is. you're starting at the local level and already things are wrong and very, very little sign of democracy. In, yeah. In you're, gerrymandering. Sticking, you're, you're sticking it to the other side. It's like, okay, because you know, winner gets the spoils. If you want to say I have control, so I'm going to set this up so I can win so I can have more seats and all. And it's almost like, it really says that you don't have much faith in your ideas. Yeah. Either, yeah. You know, to go with that, that your ideas are so bad. You literally you have to force people <laughs> to vote for you or, discourage them from voting so that you can hold on to power. Yeah. Like that's what it says. It's not democratic at all. It's just well, basically, you, hey, it, I, I just want power. If you period. look back over the last decade or two, uh, especially within the last uh, five, six years, uh, all of the efforts at voter suppression have come from the right. And there's something to be said there. <laughs> there's a statement being made there, whether people want to hear it or not. And that yeah. statement is that they, they're worried. They don't really believe in their political ideas. If they have to go to such extent as to suppress the vote, they know that most people out there aren't going to follow them, aren't going to vote for them. So let's keep them from voting. Yeah. That's I mean, a fact. That's not opinion. That's not part. Well, yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's in people, in pe but people will try to argue that. Well, what I say is it's maybe it's time to reevaluate your ideas. I mean, if, if, you're, if <laughs> we're in this place where you don't feel confident in your own ideas, you can compete with them. And I mean, it's like we like your free market system, right? I mean, if you have a good business, it's going to thrive and, you know, be successful. And if not, then it wasn't meant to succeed like i mean maybe your ideology is just like outdated outmoded maybe it's not meant to succeed but if you have to do all these things literally game and fix the system so that yeah. you can win yeah it's time to rethink things it's time and to I rethink things yeah it's really time to let go of some things and reevaluate where you stand and maybe i update your ideology update your perspective on things yeah. that's what it says to me and it also says that you know at some point there's got to be I, I, I would say that at least there's an opportunity 
to reset the system and set up in such a way where we do have better representation. I mean, there's like reforms out there, right? I mean, there are different groups that I know have been looking at reform measures. Like one of those is having multi-member districts, right? Where maybe you combine, yeah, yeah. you know, a couple of different congressional districts. So you might have like, say over Northeast Ohio, instead of like, I think there's seven districts right now, maybe you have one, but you have seven congressmen and you take the, all the votes, right? So maybe 40% of the vote ends up being Democrat. So four of those positions, let's just, make it nice and even let's say maybe you have 10 members yeah, right so yeah. 10 members in yeah. that area 40 percent four members are democrats let's say another 30 percent ends up being republicans so three of those members end up being so then the citizenry the citizenry yeah. would be properly represented because as it is now as it stands now the citizenry is not properly represented yeah absolutely i mean and it's about having like different representation for views like um if you have, again, like one district and you have one representative who's Republican, and as you and I talked about in the past, you would have, you know, that person generally understood, hey, I might be a Republican, I might be a Democrat. I have constituents who aren't of my party, who aren't of, you know, the, who voted for the other guy, right? Nevertheless, I still have a duty to represent them and at yeah. least, you know, hear them and like respect what they need and also and support them. Yeah. But we're at such an ideologically driven place where it's like, hey, I'm just going to support my people. That's yeah. Mitch McConnell. That's, That's what he Mr. does. Like, I'm just going to support those people who are my party and forget you like over here. You Man, know, you I know, wish oh, that guy, I wish that guy would just retire. Yeah. I wish that guy would retire. I wish he. Would, I wish he would just buy a turtle farm somewhere in Kentucky and just call it quits. Yeah. Did I say turtle farm? I meant horse farm. Horse farm in Kentucky. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like, and I. I truly believe in win-win approaches to things. So, like, I mean, whatever your, whatever your views or your place on the political spectrum. I mean, I think you have to understand, like. There's got to be like in order for this to work, in order for this democratic experiment to work, you've got to have some give and take. You can't right. be so purely like yeah. driven by your ideology yeah. that you can't compromise, that you can't find middle ground. Well, it seems and to so be we need structures that support that, and if that yeah. means reviving things a little bit, which is constitutional. I mean, we can sure totally it do it. Sure, it is. Right? Yeah. And actually, and some people have tried to say that um, constitutional amendments are. Or what was it? Up until I think it was up until the 1950s, we actually had a lot of districts that were multi-member districts. Um, but then I, there was a court case around that time that basically forced them into being single-member districts, and so we've had that in the place for a while. But it wasn't always that case. I mean, even our school board elections, we school board elections, at least here in Ohio, in many cities, you have like seven members of the district, but they all run at the same time. It's basically like a seven, like a multi-member district setup for like a I lot see. of our school boards, different things like that. Yeah. So okay, I didn't know that those structures do exist in the country. Oh. Uh, it's just expanding them and, you know, putting them into a situation where it's going to support democracy and where it's going to Well, yeah, it's, it seems like a lot of, it seems like a lot of political things that, uh, how do I say this? It seems as though a lot of local governments, you know, city or county uh, at that level are doing things right, but it's not bleeding into the statewide or the nationwide political machine. And why, why is that? You as an educated man, why do you think that is? 
I've, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Maybe there is no like answer. Say, I mean, I, I'd like to be able to say that um, maybe it's for lack of action or something like that, but I don't know that it's really, I mean, so one of the things that comes up for me when you say that, like here in Ohio, our cities, and this is a phenomenon that's true across most of the country, most of our cities are democratic. Um, where, you know, the Democratic Party runs most of the cities. Typically, the mayors, most of the city council, the Democratic Party. In Ohio, though, our state legislature is Republican. And so there, again, there's that split, you know, where basically Republicans are at the state level. They've been very, very, you know, successful at winning and kind of maintain control at the state level. But locally, um, the Democrats have been successful. And so there's kind of a split there. And so it's almost like, you know, you've got these two sides. And so you have the one party on one side that says that's kind of protecting its domain here at the state level. And then you have the party at the local level that's kind of protecting its domain there, more or less. And that's not true everywhere, but it is well, I that guess- case here in Ohio. Well, I, I guess um, I'm thinking about, you know, the example we had uh, a few minutes back earlier in this episode where we were talking about, you said there was a local um, cable company that was making, you know, high-speed internet available to people so that these students can continue their schoolwork. And I'm sure that's working. I'm sure that's successful. That's to the benefit of the local society. Uh, what is it that keeps that? I mean, that is something that regardless of political stance, that's something that's good for the citizenry. What is keeping that from getting the attention of the next level, you know, from the city to the County, to the state, to the nation? It's a good question. Yeah. I don't think, not that I expect you to answer that, but that is a good question. That's, that should be, I I wish I was in a position to put that question to somebody who could actually make that change because to me, it should be, it should be a given that things like that happen. And that's what kind of what I was getting at with uh, my question about this being possibly a catalyst for some dramatic political change, change for the better of the nation. Uh, You know, something like that, as far as I know, has never been done before. I've never heard of a city providing internet for people so that things are easier for them. Okay. They're doing it. Somehow they're making it work. It can't be that hard because they're doing at a city level with city funding. So if we could just expand that, you know, on up the ladder till we get to a national level, that could be, that could be a huge catalyst for change in our country. Just that alone, access to the internet. Yeah. I've, I mean, what comes up for me is, you know, again, I think there's not a whole lot of conversation between the local and state governments in a lot of places. And I do think, I mean, yeah, and, and there's certainly an opportunity for that. And it may be different. Like, you know, I, my perspective is mostly from Ohio. I mean, you have a state like New York, for example, where you have, you know, largely like Democratic administration and cities are Democratic as well. And I mean, from what I've seen, it looks like New York does get a lot more done, yeah. um, accomplished there, though. So there's yeah. that. And they may, I think they do have, I mean, at least, you know, looking at, of course, how Governor Cuomo handles things there and all. It seems like there's a lot more alignment and ability. One thing that I understand about New York, too, is that even the Republicans there seem to be, they're more like the pragmatic middle of the road kind of Republicans. So, like, there's a lot more, like, let's put aside the partisanship and get things done there. So some of it I think is, you know, as as I think about it, as I talk through it with you, I think some of it is cultural. 
Um, you know, and I will say one of the big challenges that I've seen in Ohio and even, and this goes even beyond party, one of the big issues where you and I are from in Northeast Ohio, which I continue to like look at and like kind of scratch my head about, there's this like really strong parochialism where, and you may be familiar with this in Norton, which is a suburb of Akron, you know, as you, as you know, um, there's this idea that it's like my suburb, my town is like its own self-contained place and it's that place against everything else. Like, I mean, Norton and Barberton, you know, Barberton is the neighboring city next to Norton and you know what that's like. There's this whole, I live in Norton and I don't have anything to do with Barberton, even though they share the same zip code. Yeah, yeah. Same resources and everything, same water supply, all of that. And yet Norton is adamant, no, we will not work with Barberton. There's been some annexation talks or merger talks of merging merging Barberton and Norton together. Like, no, we won't do that at all. So I think a lot of the issue even goes beyond party. It's this parochialism. It's like it's almost like individualism, but at the city level. At the city level, yeah. Where it's like, this is my town, this is my domain. But is, is, Norton, a, is Norton a city now? Isn't it still a village? It or? is a city. It is a city yeah. now. Okay, hooray for Norton. When you, when you live there, and I think it was a township before that. Yeah, it's still a city. Um, so they filled in they filled in some cornfields with uh, concrete now, I guess. <laughs> I think so. Actually, I think your house is now. They I know they were going to rebuild the high school. They did rebuild the high school they a few did, years yeah. ago. Yeah. And then I think your your dad sold off your old house, and I think they built like some more like kind of like suburban style housing out there. Now they've built a, okay. built it up a little bit more. But that getting to that point in Norton took like years because yeah. they were so adamant. Because I think they Norton doesn't have much of its own water. They have to go through Barberton for that. Right. But it's like part of this reluctance of like let's we don't want to pay Barberton more money for this. We don't want to mm-hmm. like do like any kind of joint development. It's like and I as you say about things like internet access, whatever, it's like, if this is going to help you, if this is going to help your people, why not? Like, why not work together right. and come up with these like solutions? But that parochialism, like, parochialism gets in the way. People, yeah. people are afraid to give up, give any ground, I think, because they feel like they're going to lose control. They're going to lose their identity, whatever it is. And it doesn't have to be that way, but it's just this very strong sense up there. And it's not just like Barberton Norton, like the whole region up until very recently. Like I see a little bit more effort to open things up now, but for a long time, it's like, this is my domain. Even the, the conversation with the mayors there, like, I don't know, I think you probably remember Don Pusquak was a mayor yes. of Akron for a long time. Yeah. And he would get into these big kind of like conflicts with like the mayor of Kaga Falls, Don Robart. Yeah. Um, and they've just had these turf war. I remember war that. These scuffles. And it's just like, how is this productive, guys? Yeah. Like, how is yeah. this really like, if you think about people, you're not just, it's not like there's this moat that's separating Akron and Kaga Falls <laughs> and Barton and Norton and all. You're not like these two different, completely different worlds. People will go work, live in one area and go, you know, a couple miles and work in someplace else, spending, they'll spend their money at like shops and different things, stores in that area and then go home. It's like this economy that we have, this environment that we have is very connected. Why don't we see it as such? Like if you take away all the political boundaries and stuff, you really have this like organic, you know, social economic network. 
And so why not start with that and go from there? Right, rather, right. You know, put politics in the way. Politics is really, you know, at the local level can really be hold things up in a lot of places. And that's very true in Northeast Ohio. It's a little less so in Columbus I've seen. Columbus is yeah. a lot more open. It seems like the suburbs and city are a lot more open to working together. Yeah. And, and Columbus has grown quite a bit because of that, I think. Um, and they've been able to put a lot more things into place. But yeah, in a lot of the country, I think we do see sort of this like resistance to, you know, working together to expand things out and, you yeah. know, solutions have you ever thought about running for public office <laughs> i kind of thought that was going to come up at some point oh. i have i have and it's just i don't know like i'm I, i've thought about it john and like right now i mean part of it's the part of it is a cost um you know there's a lot of fundraising that you have to do and it's really become cost prohibitive for like you know somebody to casually get in you really have to make a career change and i don't know if that's necessarily the ideal for a lot of people i mean myself included like i love a lot of what i do in education right. and all, i feel like it would have to become a full-time job well how about the idea of getting into politics and then you're in a position where you can change some of the policy that directly relates to education then you're kind of you're still in your field you still have in, and you have possibly even more influence at, at that point within your field yeah i mean that's a that's a good thought i i have considered it i have considered it i i mean i guess like really looking for me i've been thinking about the way that i would go if if i did and you know typically for you. oh thanks as long as as long as you uh, <laughs> thanks, as long as you make it policy to dig a moat between barberton and norton i'll vote for you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm still I, trying. I'm still trying to get used to Norton being a, a city now. It's always the <laughs> village of Norton back in my day. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, it is. I think at least for like ten or fifteen years, it, it wow. has been, but um, maybe longer. But less cornfields, yeah. more concrete. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think about it, and you know, I've considered running for school board. It's. I think there's a little bit of a conflict of interest as a teacher running for school board. Maybe it shouldn't be that way. But like, if I was to make a big step forward, like, I mean, one of the things I thought about was being a superintendent, which I still could do. And I have my superintendent's license. Oh, you have to have a license to be a superintendent. I didn't know yeah, that. I didn't know that. Okay. And it may be a little bit further down the road, but I mean, of course, and that's the other issue too, like how long, um, I mean, but are there things that I could do now that would get into it? And so I think maybe that is something that I could investigate sure. and I have considered on some level though, but maybe not seriously until you brought it up just now. <laughs> well, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but yeah, I, I, I do see an interest and a need. And like, I mean, from my perspective, I'm looking at what's like, what's the best solution for our kids? That's what you always have to come back to in education. What's going to best support kids? What's going to support the community? Right. Right. And, also, and there really is, you know, as we've talked about, there's a need, whatever your political views, you have to be able to work with people. Sure. I'm not anti, you know, Democrat, not anti Republican. I am anti people that are so ideologically hell bent that they mm -hmm. just like it's their way or the highway. Yeah. Yeah. And they're willing to die to be right. Then, you know, than, than to try to work out a compromise and find a solution to do that. Yeah. So that's 
that's my stand on things. There seems to be a lack of a cerebral approach to politics. It's just ideology, uh, black and white, one or the other. And, and it's like the Super Bowl. It's like it's basically <laughs> my team versus your team. We're like Ohio State versus Michigan, <laughs> yeah. right? And you know about <laughs> you know about that rivalry. It's like Ohio State, yeah. I mean, you've got people down in Columbus, and it's joke. It's it's kind of a fun joke, right? Where sure. Really, when Ohio State's getting ready to play Michigan, they'll go through and put red tape on all the M's on all the <laughs> signs, different things like that around the city. Classic you know, rivalry, borderline like obsessive, right, and fanaticism, and it's it's supposed to be fun. Yeah. But people do take it to a new level in politics, right? It's literally yeah. like you know the Democrats and Republicans are like Ohio State and Michigan, or like you know back in the day the Browns versus the Steelers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> Oh, you're making me homesick, man. <laughs> when the Browns actually won. When the Browns actually won from time to time, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Not too much of that for quite some time, but yeah. But but there's too much, as you said, I mean, as we've talked about, like people are so passionate about that. Like there's a place for it. Yeah, I sure. can see like, you know, you being like, you know, passionate about your views, passionate about things, but like, there's also time to put it aside and say, look, okay, we're all in this together. This is a situation that's bigger than, you know, your political ideology, your political views, your political party. This is a human, this is about human need. This is about humanitarianism. This is what we have to step into. And I think that's going to be even more important in the future well like i said it it hurts me to my very soul to see people suffering uh of course i'm not so naive as to think that people aren't going to suffer that's a part of the life cycle there is suffering in there but it just seems to be so unnecessary the level of suffering you know i I look at the news and i see cars in 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 different places lined up for miles you know hundreds of cars lined up waiting to get a food handout oh yeah that 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 shouldn't be that's, yeah, yeah, and that that shouldn't yeah. be happening. That should it. it no. there's no reason for that. No, yeah, that was a situation. I think that's there's a few places, but Pittsburgh was the one that I know made the news where it literally it was a food bank and people, as you said, were lined up for miles on the highway just to yeah. try to get things like toilet paper. Yeah, there's something wrong with that. Yeah, fruit and vegetables and meat. You know, just like yeah, like what what is that i mean so there's a hoarding component of that where people were hoarding these things when they knew we were going to to lock down but then it's just like the just the whole setup around that has yeah. it really hard for people to get what they need yeah, yeah, it yeah it's just like, terrible to watch it's just yeah i don't, I don't know I, I count my blessings because here in in norway we we're we're doing fine you know my wife uh is is uh is still doing her job I'm here doing my thing. I've actually uh, only been out maybe twice in the last two and a half months, but I'm fortunate in that I can, you know, I do my podcasting, my music, uh, and things like that from home. So I haven't really been that affected, um, other than in a positive way because I'm 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 tighter now with my my wife and our two kids. Uh, the kids, you know, we talk about online access and and education and whatnot. Their teachers here are doing a fantastic job. 
uh, and, and we have all the internet uh, capabilities that we need. So the kids, they have a regular school day. It's just that everything is online. A lot of video conferences with the teachers, the kids take their lunch break and group chats by video and things like that. And it puts me in a situation where I can be closer to the kids schoolwork. You know, I'm a, uh, I'm a doorway away from them as they sit in their bedrooms on their computers doing their schoolwork. And I don't know, there's something satisfying about that to me. So we, we've been able to turn the challenges of this, uh, this situation with COVID-19, we've been able to turn that into actual enhancements in our family dynamic. But um, of course, I recognize the suffering that a lot of people are are, mm-hmm. are going through. It's it's sad. It's really sad. It just it it it's heartbreaking because it's a large part of it is unnecessary. Yeah, it sounds like you have a beautiful setup there, and I mean it's one that I think people should be a little envious of here. I know I am. Well, I, uh, as I said, as I put it, people hate socialism to death. In other words, they will be so anti-socialism they won't see that it can benefit them and maybe save their life but we are quite fortunate here quite fortunate yeah well i think there's a again there's a balance i think there's there is it's also how we frame it again you know going back to the conversation like you know your roads or essentially socialism i mean a lot of public services that we have like if people really thought about it's socialism so why shouldn't healthcare be a yeah. given why should an internet be a given i mean like just some things you're just like okay why is there even a debate about this here why is there this whole political lobby that's dedicated to stopping it from going forward and you know you yeah. have to look at the, the money and the interests there that are behind that push and i don't think there's a lot of critical thought yeah. around that yeah. around these issues no there isn't maybe unfortunately maybe we get to change that <laughs> Well, we just need to get in charge. You know, like I said, you need to get into politics and, and dig that moat between Barberton and uh, Norton. Maybe another one on the other side between uh, Norton and Wadsworth. You, you, you do that, and I think you'll get some votes, at least in Norton. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's kind of going the opposite direction. We need Norton and Barberton and Wadsworth and Kenmore and Copley and all to work together. So. Yeah. 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 Wow, that's just the the city of Norton. I'm I'm just, I'm going to work on that this evening. Just try and get used to to, to that phrase, the city of Norton, not the village yeah, of Norton. Norton. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like I haven't seen a new high school, but I hear it's really you know they put some time and energy into it. So it's well. The next time I go home, I want to. I, I definitely want to check that out. I haven't I haven't seen it. I've seen pictures of it. My sister sent me uh, some pictures of it. But uh, I haven't been there. I I don't know. I I got a little emotional because I was very um, active in athletics. So that they have gotten rid of the football field. I don't know. Uh, that just uh, it was almost yeah. like how dare they? That's holy ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for you, right? Yeah. Um, I I um see. I thought they were using the high school as a middle school. I don't know if they tore it down or or what they've done with it since. So I haven't been out there too no. much recently. I can't really. Well, we were planning on coming home this summer, but that just isn't going to happen. Yeah. Uh, there's so much uncertainty with travel restrictions and whatnot. And I don't want to, I mean, I, I'm homesick all the time. I want to come oh, home, yeah. but our home is, you know, we live here and I don't want to end up getting stuck over there because it's of some course. kind of crazy quarantine situation. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, we know days anymore. Um, but if you do get to come over, I'd love to see you, John. For sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, this has been a lot of fun talking with you, but it's been kind of weird also. 
that we i mean how do i put this i've enjoyed this conversation but oh, this is too. but this is the first time i've spoken to you in over 30 years and that that's just well we just have catching up to do because this isn't right oh, this isn't right oh, but, yeah well, we could talk a little more <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, I, um, like I said, I've really enjoyed having you on and, uh, you know, we're going to pick up, uh, pick up the family ties again, but also I want to let you know, you're more than welcome to come back as a guest on this podcast. Anytime, John, I'd love Great. to come back. Great. Thank you for uh, this opportunity, cousin. <laughs> well, it was my pleasure, cousin. So thank you everybody for listening to this episode of the coming home podcast with John Allen. Bye everybody. I'm coming home. Oh, I'm coming home. I'm, yes, I am. Yes, I'm coming home. I'm coming home. Yes, I am.